0: Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show.
1: Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me with a slight cold. Apologies for that. And of course, with me, I've got the fabulous Christopher. Chris, who have we got on today?
2: Uh, I haven't got a cold, just for the record, but (laughs) today we have Steen Ringen, who is an emeritus professor at the University of Oxford, broadcaster and author of The Story of Scandinavia. So welcome to History Hack. How are you doing? Thank you
1: very
3: much. Doing
1: very well. We're very excited because all we do usually on podcasts and popular history and, of course, on the TV, we talk about Scandinavia, we talk about the Vikings, and that's it. There's there's no other history apart from the Vikings. And you've written a book that actually teaches and educates everybody from basically point A to point B, which, which is great in itself. So I don't know. What is your feeling on this Vikings issue?
3: Um, Well, there's a lot of debate about who the Vikings were, about the degree to which they were good people and the degree to which they were bad people. And my take is that they were pretty vicious and that they were um, the best in their time in the use of violence and terror.
2: Yeah, I thought we were avoiding the Vikings. I can't believe you went for them first.
1: Look, I mean, Chris, be fair, I started. I started. You might as well finish it. <laughs>
2: to be fair, the Viking, Vikings are always cool. They're always good to get children interested in history when you talk about Vikings. But we said we'd move on from them. So how did the first transformation in the 13th century change
3: the Norseman's way of life? Well, the Viking Age came to an end. You know, the the Viking Age was really an age of raiding abroad with uh, Viking ships and in other ways and taking of slaves and Uh, to some degree, settling in different countries. But that came to an end. It just petered out. It was finished. And at the same time, there were big improvements in agriculture at home. These were agricultural economies. Everyone lived off the soil. And from around 1200, uh, the soil started to yield enough production for there to be surplus. The Scandinavians could live on their own production and they didn't need to plunder abroad. And suddenly there was surplus. There was something to work with. And that had big consequences for the way people lived and for the way um, kings ruled and very much for the way the church organized itself and society.
1: In between this question and that question, I'm just gonna go off tangent here because it wouldn't be this podcast if I don't go off the questions. And of course, I'm going to bring up Poland, because I have to bring up Poland in this context. There is not a very good relationship between Poland and Scandinavia at all, is there? I mean, there is a lot of war, a lot of invasion, and a lot of death and basically occupation. Am I wrong or right, or where am I going wrong with this?
3: No, that's right. This, um, this was bad. We're now moving a good deal forward in um, the history.
1: We can move forward and backwards, however, whatever. And
3: um, uh, they were there. This was a period of constant warfare in Europe in which the Scandinavians were involved, in particular Sweden, and some of that warfare was directed at Poland. One of the problems was that at one point there was an heir who claimed the right to be both king of Poland and king of Sweden. And that created big trouble. He, in fact, he he resided in Poland, but he it, he invaded and occupied Sweden in attempt to take the Swedish crown, but was beaten and was chased back to Poland. And that was the end of the attempt to create a joint monarchy between Sweden and Poland. Um, subsequently. There was a great deal of warfaring from Sweden towards Poland. And this was at a time when war was really brutal. And uh, everyone suffered. The Poles suffered badly in many ways, including by Swedish plunder. So a lot of art was t- taken from Polish castles and palaces and brought back to Sweden in one of the great plundering campaigns of all time.
2: Sticking with the sort of Eastern European thing, the, um, the Norse had quite an impact on, um, Scandinavians had quite an impact on Russia as well, didn't they?
3: Well, very much so. They were also warring with Russia. Um, and in fact, at the time when Peter the Great started to build his new capital city in what is there now St. Petersburg, it was uh, Leningrad for a while, uh, he built it on what the swedes claimed was swedish territory uh, now peter the great didn't care very much about that so he just started building his city but the result was warfare vicious warfare between sweden and russia initiated at this time by the swedish king charles the 12th who is considered to be a or considered by some to be a national hero in sweden but who was a, an utter failure as king and warrior and who made the ultimate mistake in military history of trying to invade Russia. That is impossible. Charles Twelfth tried and was beaten. Napoleon tried and was beaten. Hitler tried and was beaten. That is the ultimate military mistake in Europe.
1: How does this? How does this battle? Or let me rephrase that. How does this invasion happen? Because I mean, I'm not going to admit where I learned all this information from because people may cru- crucify me completely and utterly. But I know that Catherine the Great was involved somewhere along the lines, uh, and there were constant skirmishes happening on the borders. What? Tell us a little bit more about this because this is actually really interesting.
3: Uh, well, Sweden was a very big power. It came out of the Thirty Years' War and the period after the Thirty Years' War as the dominant Protestant power in Europe um, and Sweden was in control of an empire around the Baltic Sea that included parts of what is now Poland, the Baltic States, and much uh, territory in present-day Russia and um, Charles the Twelfth again we are now in about the year 1700, wanted to um, extend and fortify his control over possessions bordering up to and in Russia. And in that interest, he launched war on Russia and on Peter the Great. He tried to march on Moscow, on Russia, but that failed. And he was driven, his army was driven south instead into what is today the Ukraine. And there, at a battle at, at Poltava, in seventeen oh eight, the Swedish army was totally crushed by the Russians. And Charles the Twelfth himself had to flee and sought rescue with the Ottomans and aid in more or less. Ottoman captivity for six or eight years until he was released on the promise to go back north and then he did that crossed through Europe back to the Baltics escaped to Sweden from the last Swedish possession on the continent just before that possession also failed and came back to uh, Sweden in 17. Seventeen, seventeen, sixteen,
1: seventeen, seventeen. I thought you were going to say Poland. By the look on your face, uh, you—I thought you were going to give it away and say he was taken by the Poles. I could say, "Oh God, well this is going to turn completely and utterly disastrous." But you said Ottomans, so we're okay. We're okay.
2: <laughs> so when we talk about sort of European involvement in the history of Africa, you always, people tend to think of powers like Britain, France, Spain, Belgium, Germany a little bit. What was Scandinavia's? Uh, interaction with Africa?
3: Well, when the uh, colonial economy opened up in the Caribbean and North America, the Scandinavians were eager to get a slice of that activity. Early on, there was an attempt to establish a Swedish colony in North America, uh, in what is today Wilmington in Delaware, where present President uh, Joe Biden is from. And there was a small colony there for a few years. Later, there were in particular Danish colonies in the Caribbean. The islands which are today the American Virgin Islands were a Danish colony, Danish crown colony. And they ran plantations, sugar plantations on those islands. And in support of that, those plantations, they ran slave trade across the Atlantic from Africa. So Denmark in particular, Sweden to some degree, but Denmark in particular was a big power in the American Caribbean colonial business. And they behaved in exactly the same way as the bigger colonial powers. They uh, ran plantations, they exported back sugar, they held slaves, And they traded in slaves. Um, The Scandinavians had been big slave traders during the Viking Age, and when the opportunity opened again with the Africa to America trade, they got into it with no hesitation and no compunction.
1: Slightly not off topic, but on topic, apart from the Viking Age and obviously the slave trade in Africa, were the Scandinavians involved in any other form of slavery at all?
3: Well, that's pretty much because during the Viking Age, they were big slave traders for 300 years. And during the um, plantation colony period, they were big slave traders again during another 200 years. So that's pretty much. In terms of slavery, that's it. These were the two periods when they were slave nations. but the, the Viking societies were slave societies. And in the later period, um, uh, uh, Denmark became a significant plantation economy and a significant trader in African slaves across the Atlantic.
1: Before Chris jumps in, sorry, I'm asking millions of questions that are slightly off topic here, but it's really interesting how you say that. Scandinavia, because you just don't think that Scandinavia would have anything to do with the slave trade. In schools, you are taught that it was uh, the British, it was the French, um, and, and all the big and major powers that were involved in the slave trade. And Scandinavia is kind of wiped off. I don't know if, what, what the educational system is like in Scandinavia, but in Britain, for example, even Polish schools, because those are the two I can reference, and even in America, do you know why this is? Why is Scandinavia sort of like whitewashed in this time period?
3: Well, at least that's part of what I have found interesting in this story and why it's worth telling this story. Because Scandinavia today is a really nice place. And there isn't there isn't anywhere um, in the world where people have better conditions than in Scandinavia. But that's not their history. Their history is one of brutality and violence and warfare and slavery and all of that. And it's because of that contrast that I found it interesting to tell this story. There's a big, big difference between Scandinavia as it looks today, brand Scandinavia, if you will, and the historical backdrop. And that contrast is what has made it so interesting, for me at least, to try to tell this story. You know, this, this, uh, nice brand Scandinavia of today has come out of an absolutely horrific history.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just before we started, I said the only Scandinavian history I, I know is from sort of from Harold Hadrada in 1066 all the way through and then nothing till uh, the Germans invade in April 1940. So it's, it's good to, to talk about this. But we've talked about the, the military mistakes made by uh, the Scandinavians um, sort of in the 18th and 19th century. But surely they had some successes as well. Uh, Count Bernadotte sort of comes to mind, but I could
3: be wrong. Uh, They had many successes. Um, And in the 17th century, they were, the Swedes were very successful in coming out of the 30 years war in two ways. They were successful in having taken an empire, in Northern Europe, including territories on the continents. And they were success- enriched themselves through plunder during the Thirty Years' War. Now, before the Thirty Years' War, Sweden, Sweden is the big power in this at this period. Sweden was a pretty poor country and culturally very poor. At the end of the Thirty Years' War, and subsequent wars in the period, they emerged as a culturally rich country with vast collections of painting art, sculpture, manuscripts, Bibles, and so on, which they had plundered systematically from others uh, in the German lands and in Poland during those wars. And still today, um, galleries and museums in Sweden are chock full with art and with precious manuscripts that come out of that plunder. So this transformed Sweden in particular in many ways. And in ways that, from a Swedish perspective, were successful, as successful as judged at the time.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
1: That is very interesting. I didn't know that. So, let's throw another question. I'm doing this today. I don't know why I'm going completely off topic. You mentioned that there's a lot of plunder that is now in uh, Swedish museums that have been seized from like Germany, Poland, and places like that. Does Sweden ever want to give it back? I know it's a bit of a moral question here because you know we we have this question with the British Museum and antiquity and things like that, but. When it comes to sweden do you, do you know anything more about that?
3: There's been a good deal of discussion about some things that are that at least many people consider to be unlawfully in Sweden and that many people think should be repatriated to where they came from. But the trouble is that it isn't easy usually to identify what the origin of these artifacts are. So where should they be repatriated? Now I'll give an example. There is a, a wonderful manuscript known as the Silver Bible that sits in the university library in Uppsala in Sweden, which was plundered from Prague in 1648 at the very end of the 30 years war. And there's been much discussion about returning that Bible to Prague. But the problem is that it was also in Prague as a result of plunder. It had no rightful place in Prague. So even if there should be some sentiment in Sweden that they might be willing to repatriate this treasure to its home, no one today knows what that home is or where, if so, it should be repatriated and the discussion that ran for some time about that uh, commodity that bible has i think petered out there isn't any issue on that on the agenda right now
1: that's really interesting thank you for that
3: yeah, so um, dragging
2: dragging it back to the questions we've gone from materials being moved around europe at the beginning of the 19th century uh, there's a lot of human immigration and moving around Uh, Was uh, Scandinavia sort of similarly affected as as mainland Europe?
3: Very much so. From about 1850 and forwards to around 1920, there was a vast emigration from Sweden and Norway. Some from Denmark also, but not to the same degree. So both Sweden and Norway, in a period of about 50 years, shed about a quarter of its population in emigration to north america this was mainly driven by poverty there had been rapid population growth and the scandinavian countries were coming overpopulated relative to resources um, it was also driven to some degree by religion the first migrations were emigrations were religious people wanted religious freedom they wanted to get away from the as they saw it, the faith dictatorship of the Lutheran State Church. They wanted to 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 uh, ha- have control over their own worship, and they went for that reason to North America. But the main driving force was um, poverty. And uh, uh, again, during 40, 50 years, about a quarter of the Swedish and Norwegian populations shifted across the Atlantic to North America.
1: Very silly question. Is that why certain Americans, uh, I'm going to bring it down to genetics now, um, are blonde hair and blue eyed? Is that from the, my brain is, is dying here, is that from uh, the Swedish and Norwegian roots?
3: The The Scandinavian immigrants mainly settled in the Midwest in Wisconsin, Dakotas, Montana. Um, And there, there were huge Scandinavian societies, Uh, but there were also many other migrants to North America from all over Europe, from Germany, from Italy, from uh, Greece and elsewhere. So there was the, the migration from Europe to America from around, 1850 and into the 20th century, was enormous from different parts of Europe when America attracted immigrants. Um, Scandinavians were part of it, um, but they were not uh, the most numerous, um, although a very large section of the Scandinavian populations did migrate. I was
2: just going to throw in a follow-up. That there's quite a large proportion of the population to leave did uh, did the Scandinavian countries do what Germany did to try and limit the amount of people leaving, or did they um just let let it keep flowing
3: no there 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 were attempts to r- restrict the migration, but it was not successful and it was big business you know America propagated emigration very strongly. And there were business interests, shipping companies, travel agents, and so on uh, that organized the emigration, supplied loans, did the technicalities. So there was a strong drive to to get people uh, across the Atlantic. And the efforts that were made at home to hold back on this migration wasn't very successful. Because there wasn't economic strength enough. There, 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 wasn't enough work and, and sustenance for the number of people in uh, Sweden and Norway. And the flows just continued until uh, it came to an end on the American side when America decided around 1920 that they should restrict uh, emigration into, into North America.
1: So the next question is—it's oh, more of Chris's cup of tea. So I might be nice, and say, Chris, can you ask the next question? I
2: have, I have, I have a feeling that Alina saved this one for me because she knows I have a, an interest in Arctic exploration and stuff. So we're going to ask about the Age of Exploration, and I have a feeling I know the answer to one of these. But who are the uh, who were the two most
3: notable explorers? Well, the most notable one was Roald Amundsen, who was the first to reach the South Pole. Uh, and who uh, beat uh, the british um, in the attempt to reach the south pole and planted the norwegian flag in a territory where uh, that not yet been seen by human hand that was Amundsen. Um, he died in 1928 and he was a great great explorer um, Possibly a second one to mention is a Swede called Sven Hedin, who was an explorer in Asia, of the Himalayas, of the um, Great Chinese Wall, and who was very successful as a writer of books about his explorations, became very famous in Europe. Uh, at home in Scandinavia, he became a um, nationalist a militarist and a reactionary who was very involved in uh, home politics on the militaristic side and whose um, um, influence continued up into the Second World War where he propagated uh, that uh, the responsibility for the Second World War lay with American aggression and not with Hitler's Germany.
1: Oh, very controversial. That's very controversial, but interesting. I like that point. Okay, no, I'm not going to get involved in the Second World War. I'm going to stick to the time period because that nicely, let's us move into the First World War, which is more Chris's cup of tea, but I haven't read much about Scandinavia's involvement in the First World War. And I'm a little bit interested in knowing where they stood. What were their attitudes to the First World War? How did it affect the politics and the economy?
3: Well, the Scandinavian countries were neutral in the First World War. So they were not directly involved. They were not warfaring, war participating countries. And as a result of that, they were able some degree to profit from the war economy neutral countries can trade with all parties and are obliged to trade with all parties so in many ways uh, the first world war was good for business in scandinavia uh, not in all ways but in many ways they were they, the first world war was good for business and that followed through to a boom after the first world war which lasted two, three, four years until the European and the Scandinavian economy started to crash in the 1920s. Uh, and when things went from bad to worse until the big crash in 1929. These were very hard periods also in Scandinavia of economic crisis, unemployment and of class warfare. and. Uh, all stirred up by the early influences of fascism and communism.
2: We get to April 1940, and the Second World War comes with the vengeance for two of the three Scandinavian powers. Uh, Denmark lasts about 40 minutes. Uh, Norway lasts, uh, they're still fighting up until June 1940. How does, because Sweden stays neutral, Norway kind of splits. You've got the government in exile. Uh, who want to fight with the allies and then you've got um Quisling fighting for the uh, urging fighting for the nazis how does this how does this affect how does the outcome of the war affect uh, the Scandinavian countries
3: well as you say both denmark and norway were occupied on the 9th of april 1940 the occupation unfolded in different ways in those two countries in denmark uh, uh, the authorities capitulated very early, as you say, after an hour, an hour and a half. Um, And and the occupation was, at least until the last part of the war, relatively easy and cooperative in Denmark. In Norway, the occupation came at exactly the same time, the same night. And there, for more or less reasons of coincidence, uh, the Norwegians took Uh, To fighting the German occupation and continued to fight the German occupation for about two months until they had to capitulate and accept occupation. And in Norway, the occupation was much harder for ordinary people. In Denmark, to some degree, life went on. In Norway, life did not go on. It became very, very hard in terms of repression, in terms of shortage and in terms of continued resistance and fighting. Sweden was neutral, which again meant they had a relatively good time economically, but it was a very difficult balancing act. And in many ways, Sweden was in collaboration with the other Nordic, the other Scandinavian countries in managing the threat From Germany.
1: However, much I want to stay on the subject of World War II, we still have got another 60 years of history to cover. So I'm going to move on from this. But post war, how does all of this affect the Nordic countries and what are the results of their allegiance?
3: Well, there's um, long been a tradition of animosity between the Scandinavian countries. I mean, for much of the history that I've described, Sweden and Denmark were bloody enemies and were at constant warfare against each other, warfare that in periods took the form of one country trying to crush and, and eliminate the other, wipe the other country off the surface of the map of, of, of the earth. So there, there, there's a long history of animosity between the Scandinavian peoples and countries. And that was to some degree stimulated by the different experiences of the Second World War. I mean, Denmark has by others been described as cowardly by capitulating very early. Norwegians, many Norwegians have made themselves heroic by insisting that they fought and never capitulated. They gave up but never capitulated. Many in in Denmark and Norway have been resentful against Sweden for standing outside as neutral and for getting pretty well through the war. So these animosities between the Scandinavian peoples and countries uh, were kept alive by the experience of the Second World War. And it's only quite a bit later that the kind of collaboration that is now part of brand Scandinavia, close collaboration between these countries, that has come into place much later. We are into the 1970s, 1980s, and so on, before real collaboration became a reality. So how would you say that Scandinavia has changed
2: its politics and culture and economy to to what it is today?
3: Well, the, um, the 20th century is absolutely remarkable. I mean, this is often described as a dark century, and rightly so. A century of uh, wars, two world wars, economic crisis, class conflict, fascism, communism, all of that. But in spite of all of that, the big story in the Scandinavian, in the 20th century, is a story of progress. Absolutely astonishing progress. There's never been anything like the movement forwards in economy and in politics that was seen in the 20th century. The economies grew to be become very strong and the political systems became firmly democratic. And these things, this is is the origin of brand Scandinavia. That, that, way that we perhaps today think of scandinavia as affluent well-organized equal welfare state all of that that belongs to the 20th century and really to the latter part of the 20th century
1: so i my lovely co-host alex who um will be back soon on the podcast she threw in a question that she wanted me to ask you and that is um how does Scandinavia's place in the world change over time?
3: Well, they change monumentally, as I, as I try to suggest, from a long history of violence and warfare and aggression to being today peacemakers and peace lovers, collaborative, a positive element in the world. So it's an enormous shift. And again, that has come mainly in the 20th century. So there's there's no comparison between what we might think of as Scandinavia today and the history out of which that Scandinavia has emerged.
2: It's it's like they they've actually learned from the history uh which other European nations I'm going to go out on a limb and say probably haven't very well but Scandinavia really has. They've sort of redeemed themselves. If that's the right thing to say.
3: Well I think that's true and at least I argue that all this terrible history was a, a battle with trying to be big, trying to be dominate others, trying to be big powers. And they can't be that. And it took a very long time to learn that they couldn't be big and to come to terms with themselves as sort of modest countries and modest kingdoms and to concentrate on themselves rather than on positioning them themselves and positioning uh, their reputation elsewhere in the world. So they've they've concentrated on themselves. They've built a good home. And on that basis, uh, they can now probably stand with some pride in the world.
1: I've very much enjoyed this podcast because I've learned a lot, connected some dots in history that have had missing links. And I really think we need to get you back on to do something a little bit more in depth on Scandinavian history, because I think our listeners will absolutely love it. I know Chris and I would absolutely love it. But before we finish, I've got one more question for you, which is you've covered more than a thousand years of history here in your book. What is your favourite moment within this whole book?
3: (laughs) Well, Listen. There are uh, the book is full of kings. You know, kings come and go all the time. Pretty motley lot they are. But there's two queens that stand out in this parade, and the first one is Queen margarete We are now uh, around 1400, and she created a union of the three countries under one monarchy. Absolutely astonishing. And partly for idealistic reasons, understanding that these three countries, if they were going to make something of themselves, they had to collaborate rather than fight. And she created a union with exceptional statecraft. Very, very clever and gifted woman. She was never queen. She was titled gracious um, husband. And um, uh, regent, but she was in charge and she created a union. And I would have loved to have a word with her. The other is Queen Christina of Sweden, who was Queen of Sweden at the end of the Thirty Years' War and who orchestrated a lot of this plunder that we have been talking about, but who was a very intelligent and exceptional young woman. Um, she abdicated quite young, she was twenty-eight years old, didn't want to be queen anymore, converted to Catholicism, moved to Rome, became a power in the Roman Church, in the Catholic Church, and is buried in the crypt of St. Peter's um, Basilica in Rome. And if you go into that Basilica, one of the first things you will see is the statue of Queen Christina.
1: I think this is what you need to come back and talk to us about, these two remarkable
3: the queens, queens. The yes, queens, the queens. Yes,
1: we can do a whole podcast on these two fabulous queens. That is what you've got to come back and do for us. I don't know, what do you think, Chris?
3: Yeah,
2: absolutely, definitely. We were, we were saying we need uh, more women's history and, Scandin- uh, and Scandinavia is not an area we cover a lot of. So yeah, that, that would be fantastic.
3: Well, these two women were exceptional. I mean, they, they stood out um, in a brilliant way, compared to all the other all those kings that paraded back and forth, and they were they were quite unique. I mean, one of the things Christina did was she got Rene Descartes, the great French philosopher, to Sweden. Um, uh, uh, on well, she got him to come move to Sweden, partly that he was going to tutor her in philosophy. Um, this was to happen in early morning meetings, early morning tutorials in the palace, which was ice cold. And the French philosopher, who was used to a good and warm life, couldn't take it. And he died of pneumonia. And historians have blamed Christina for the too early death of Europe's greatest philosopher.
1: That's a little bit mean to blame to blame her for. They could have been multiple. Obviously, nowadays we know that there could have been underlying conditions and medical issues, and I don't know. Maybe he had a heart attack. We don't know. But blaming him. But sorry, blaming her just for moving the philosopher out. That okay? Yeah, probably he had an issue with the cold and he didn't like it and it was difficult. But there could have been multiple other reasons why. This has really annoyed me a little bit because it's like they're t- tainting this amazing woman with. Oh, yeah, she killed a very famous French philosopher because she dragged him over.
2: I mean, to be fair, it's cold.
1: (laughs) You can't see, but I'm shaking my head and putting my hand on my palm right now, Chris. (laughs) I live in Poland. I know what cold is. But no, Mm. uh, please tell me you don't argue this, that that you think she also killed him for that reason.
3: Didn't kill him, obviously. But, um, you know, she believed that as queen... She had the right to command him to do what she wanted him to do at whatever time was convenient for her, without any consideration to what he himself wanted or what his condition was. Uh, so uh, I don't think Queen Christina comes out very well from the Descartes adventure.
1: Okay, that I I'll I'll give you that. That that's understandable. That's understandable, sorry. <laughs>
2: So yeah, now this has been this has been really interesting. As Alina said, we've covered about a thousand years, and not just like one thing. We branched over all different genres of history, and it's been really, really interesting. I, I hope our listeners have enjoyed it as much. Uh, could you just remind everyone
3: of the uh, title of your book and uh, when it's due out and where they can get it from? It's called The Story of Scandinavia, from the Vikings to Social Democracy. It's out. It's in all the bookshops. Every bookshop I've walked past, I've gone in and signed the books there. They're available. <laughs> so easy to get hold of and in all other possible ways, of course. Beautiful cover. Fantastic, colorful, brilliant cover. And we'll, uh,
2: we'll try and get it for the History Hack Online bookshop as well. So that with every sale, uh, the podcast will get a slight, tiny slice of the money. And you, as the author, will get more money than if it goes through a popular rainforest named website that I'm not allowed to name. But um, yeah, thank you very much wonderful. for coming on and, and talking to us about this.
3: Okay. Thank you
1: our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book this is just a small taster as a result we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests latest books you can support them and you can support us on history hack 10 percent of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,